since the dawn of humanity, mankind has sought to stave off death. You can probably think of examples of this practice. The Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon, searching for the fabled fountain of youth. Alchemists in the 17th century attempting to create the Philosopher's Stone. It was a, a substance that could turn common metals into gold, but also act as an elixir of life. In the modern age, we try to stave this off by dieting profusely, eating only organic, exercising. In the fantasy world of Harry Potter, where the protagonists are looking for the deathly hallows, these three mystical objects which can protect one from death. But such pursuits are always futile. In the words of J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, death comes for us all in the end, she writes. This morning, we come to the fifth I am statement of Jesus, which is paired with the most epic of his miracles, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, these miracles of Jesus were meant to be understood as a down payment for the kingdom of God, whispers, if you will, pointing to the presence of God's kingdom, breaking through into our midst. The miracles were a tangible expression of the spiritual reality that Jesus brought with him. This miracle is often viewed as one of the pinnacles of the ministry of Jesus, accomplishing something so unusual that we kind of crest on the top. It's almost a high point of Jesus' public ministry, and on the heels of this, we begin to descend into his crucifixion. So if you would please open Bibles, Bible apps, whatever you feel comfortable with, we're going to turn to John chapter 11 this morning. Now this is a really long passage. We're not going to read it in its entirety but I've selected a couple of shorter segments to focus on. And we're going to start reading at verse 17. But before we get there, let me set the context for what has happened in the first 16 verses. So there's a man named Lazarus who is sick, and his sisters Mary and Martha petitioned Jesus to come visit. And this is the same Mary and Martha we've heard in other biblical stories like Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 38 to 42, you know, you have Martha, the type A sister, frantically trying to host, and, you know, Mary, the type B sister, just sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him. Most likely, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were kind of like an extended family of Jesus. The text tells us that they lived in a town called Bethany, which is about a mile and a half to two miles from Jerusalem. So, you know, Bethany, and possibly, almost probably, their household may have been a home base for Jesus when he was visiting Jerusalem, That he would, because he didn't really have a house that he would stay at that was his own, so when he would go, he would, uh, you know, had friends, had uh, kind of a network of people that he would stay with, and chances are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was one of the houses that he and his disciples would stay with when they were near Jerusalem. So Lazarus is sick, and his sisters are hoping that Jesus can work a miracle to heal Lazarus like he's done for so many others. Now, in light of this, verses 5 and 6, if you've got that open, you want to look at it, make an incredible claim. It says, because of Jesus' affection for Mary and Martha, he sprints there as fast as he can. That's not what it says. He lingers a few extra days before going to visit. Now, if you know the story, Lazarus dies while Jesus is waiting. Think about that for a minute. minute. Jesus tarries because of his love for Mary and Martha. He wants to use this as an opportunity to minister to them in a powerful way. 
Jesus then proceeds to tell his disciples that Lazarus asleep, is asleep. He's going to go wake him up. And as usual, the disciples completely miss the metaphor until Jesus has to tell them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, the irony of this exchange with the disciples is that for Jesus, death is in fact more like sleep. As we see later, it doesn't have the finality for him as it seemingly does for the rest of us. So those are some introductory themes. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see that the purpose of this encounter is for the glory of God, that death isn't going to have the final victory. Jesus is going to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat here. So let's pick up and read. John eleven seventeen to 27. So Jesus, as he's arrived at Bethany, he's still away off, and Martha comes to him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. All right, let me give you a little bit of historical and cultural background of this text. So the, the text says that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And this is important because there was a common Jewish belief in that day that when someone died, their soul would linger near the body, trying to re-enter it. The soul would stick around for three days, but once decomposition would begin to set in, it would depart. So the fact that it says that Lazarus was dead for four days meant that Lazarus was really dead. The miracle that followed couldn't just be chalked up to a kind of like resuscitation. And with his burial, there would have been a public mourning that took place. We see this. The family and friends would gather around. They would support Mary and Martha, and that would last about seven days. So Jesus arrives in the midst of that ceremony. Lazarus has been buried in a cave where a stone was rolled over the mouth of it. You know, think, think of when you imagine the burial of Jesus. That's kind of the similar type of setup that Lazarus was buried in, right? This cave with this... this uh, um, tomb, or with the stone rolled in front of it, because the body would be placed in that cave for about a year or so, and after enough time had passed by, the bones of the body would be buried in something called an ossuary, which was a little bit bigger, you know, it's kind of like a glorified shoebox for long-term keeping. In fact, I got a picture of one for you here. That's that's what an ossuary, so it was kind of like a two-stage burial that they would do. I don't know if it's just to save space or what, This is interesting. This is a little bit of an aside, uh, but this is really important in archaeological history because this particular bone box uh, was found a couple decades ago, I think about 20 years ago, and on the side, I don't know that we can see it. You can barely make it out, but it's inscribed, quote, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. 
Now, the interesting thing about this, it was very uncommon. This has nothing to do with Lazarus, but I, I'm just, if you enjoy archaeological, this is, this is actually quite profound. It was very uncommon to put any relatives other than your father on the bone box, right? Because they were usually so-and-so son of so-and-so, unless your brother was someone or a family member was someone of significance. So the fact that Jesus' name is on this box, a number of archaeologists think that this might actually be the bone box, the ossuary of James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, the brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James that we have in our New Testament. So anyway, fascinating stuff to me. If your eyes glazed over, I'm sorry, I'll get back into it. So anyway, in this setting, so that, that's kind of what's going on. So Lazarus' body has been placed in this tomb, kind of wrapped up for this next year, year and a half to decompose a bit. And so in this setting, it's Martha approaching Jesus with her grief that her brother's dead. She says plainly, like, Jesus, if you had been here, he would not have died. Right? Je- Jesus, you are capable of anything. Although in her saying that, she's probably not expecting what is going to come next. She's probably not expecting him to raise him from the dead. Because verse 39, which we'll get to in a moment, she kind of is like reluctant to roll the stone away. Like, he's going to smell pretty bad. It's been dead for a few days. Now, this is the interaction where we see this I am statement of Jesus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And this is an important declaration. Jesus is claiming that he is the master of both life and death. Note that Jesus doesn't say he provides resurrection and life, but he is those things. Eternal life is not merely a gift we receive from God, but they are byproducts of what it means to live in association with Jesus. In the words of one commentator, if Jesus is life, then those who believe in him will enjoy the confidence and power over death known by him. Now, this isn't a claim that his disciples wouldn't die a physical death. The second half of that statement in verse 25 acknowledges that even in the midst of death, they're going to live. And if we know anything from church history, it's that the disciples died horrific and painful deaths. The only disciple to die of natural causes causes was John. He was beaten. He was exiled into the land of Patmos. Uh, Some some traditions say that he was blinded before that. So uh, again, he, he he died of natural causes, but he suffered pretty mightily before then. The hope is not that followers of Jesus will live pain-free lives, but that Jesus is the one who controls life and the finality of death. Jesus here has come to resurrect and minister to Lazarus, but it's not only for Lazarus that he has come. He comes to minister to Mary and Martha. He ministers to his disciples Reading this story nearly 2,000 years later, he comes to minister to us as well, reminding us of the power and authority that he possesses over death. Let's go back to the text. Mary comes next, poses some similar statements to Jesus. You know, if if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died, and I want to pick this up mid-encounter. So this is John 11, 33, and I'm going to read to 46. So Mary's crying. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, came, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, the reason that I've included this tail end of Jesus's interaction with Mary is because I think it reveals a few things about the character of Jesus. In the section, it begins with Mary and her friends weeping. Now, this isn't some, you know, private expression of grief, shedding a tear or two. The Greek word gives this impression that they are wailing loudly and publicly. And in response, Jesus is deeply moved. Now, if you're reading the ESV, it's got a little footnote that suggests the word indignant. I should have looked up what the King James is because sometimes they get, they they really like the, the language of that. Because even indignant, I don't think, gets to the heart of what is being communicated here. The word literally means to snort like an angry horse. This isn't just sentimental sympathy that Jesus is experiencing here. In humans, this language is language of, of anger or outrage, fury, wrath. Some of you may remember a few months ago, I shared that the Old Testament uh, there, there's a Hebrew idiom for God being patient is literally, or long-suffering, is literally in the Hebrew that God is long of nose or long of nostril. In the words of theologian George Knight, it, it, he says it takes a long time for the snort of anger to come through God's nose. That's why he's patient. But what we have here is precisely the opposite. Jesus is furious in this moment. And we see that same expression a few verses later in verse 38, that he's deeply moved, he's angry. And this begs the question, why is Jesus filled with such outrage? Now, it seems to be in response to the weeping we see from Mary and the crowd. Is he angry with them? If they would just have a shred of faith, then they would know that it's all going to turn out okay. I don't, I don't think that the people's, I don't think that's it. I don't think that the people's grief over the death of their brother or their friend is the root of his anger. I believe that he is livid with death itself. That this is not the way things are supposed to be. The original plan for humanity was one of life, not death. Right? God's goal for Adam and Eve was for them to grow and mature in their relationship with him, to partake of the tree of life, to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. To reign with him forever. 
But sin and its consequences derailed that process. You see, I think a very important lesson for us is in this story. And it flips the script of what our cultural understanding of, about death is. I think the way we understand death is actually wrong. Right? I quoted J.K. Rowling earlier when she wrote, death comes for us all in the end. And our understanding is that death is the logical conclusion of life. It's to be expected. It's natural. But here we see Jesus react so strongly at death. And I think it's meant to remind us that death is not natural. Death is the unnatural intruder into our world. Death is the tyrant that Jesus has come to vanquish and return the world back on that path towards Eden. And that's why this miracle is so significant, because it is a foretaste. It's a down payment, a place where we see more fully the presence of God's true kingdom. We see God breaking through into the world. It's a reminder of who is, in fact, truly in charge. And when Jesus acknowledges that his followers are continued to, to face death, sometimes in brutal forms, the miracle gives us hope that death isn't the last word. I mean, looking at verse 39, Martha is labeled as the sister of the dead man, once again reinforcing the, the seemingly termination of Lazarus' life. He's really, really dead. Jesus then prays to the Father. Note he always prays directly to the Father. No corporate language of our Father, but displaying his intimacy, appealing directly to this Father, reminding everyone of the authority that he has. And then in verse 43, he commands Lazarus to come out. This is a shout of raw authority. There is no doubt that Lazarus will obey the sound of his voice even though he's been dead for four days. As we read in the text, Lazarus comes out. I kind of imagine him hobbling a little bit like a mummy in his grave bindings. So what do we do with that story? Well, verses 45 and 46 show us two different paths that we can take as a result of this miracle. In verse 45, we see that many of the Jews who were there believed in him. Some translations say that they put their faith in him. And in the Gospel of John, he uses this to denote, to express true, genuine faith. These, these people have seen the miracle and acknowledged Jesus as the identity that he just said to Martha, that he is the master of life, he is the master of death. Genuine faith, contrary to what we ought often see in the Gospels, where the crowds, Jesus works a miracle, and the crowds are amazed. They marvel at it, but that's not necessarily the same thing as genuine faith. Verse 46 shows the rest of the crowd that they go to the Pharisees to report what they've seen, and this sets in motion the path to the cross. Right, this is the straw that broke the camel's back for the religious leaders finally making good on their desire to rid themselves of this rogue rabbi. And this miracle in John brings an end to the public ministry of Jesus. The next time that we encounter him in public is as a pris prisoner, suffering torture, walking up that rugged hill towards Calvary. The great irony of the story is that as Jesus resurrects Lazarus, pushing back death itself, by the end of the chapter, we see the plot that leads to Jesus' own death. But the message of the story shows us that the tomb that could not hold Lazarus when Jesus was near can't hold him either. Now, as we try to bring this home, I have two pieces of application. The first is I think this story shows us that grief is real and it's permissible 
for us to feel. We don't see Jesus rebuke the tears of Mary and Martha. Martha shows her understanding, her belief that Lazarus would experience a resurrection on the last days. Lazarus was about to experience a a taste of that resurrection momentarily, but Jesus doesn't give a cliche like, you know, he's such a good person, God just wanted to be with him, or don't be sad that he's gone, be happy that he's in a better place. He doesn't say anything like that. He gives her time and space to mourn. When he encounters Mary weeping uncontrollably, he doesn't chastise her and tell her to pull herself together. Instead, he gets angry on her behalf at death itself. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the New Testament, reminds us that Jesus also wept for his friend. He got angry. He was saddened by death himself. If Jesus is permitted to feel those emotions and even experience them himself, if, if Jesus permitted others to feel those emotions and even felt them himself, surely it's acceptable for us to grieve and to mourn when, we, when the unthinkable happens. We as Christians aren't called to live a stoic life, you know, just putting on a happy face when suffering happens. You know, we're not supposed to just pretend like everything is okay because we have hope in Jesus. Yes, we have hope in Jesus, but in the moment, he gives us permission to grieve. He even grieves alongside of us. But the story also gives us hope to live resurrected lives. As we sang about before the message, we have confidence that death for us and those that are found in Christ is not the last word. Our, co- our confidence is in the power of Jesus. One of the themes in the Gospel of John is the signs of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. And it's through these miracles that he reveals his identity. In John, there are seven signs, seven miracles that he highlights and points out. At the end of the book, he says there's a whole lot more that I didn't write about, but in this, he selected seven miracles. And it's significant, right? Because seven is this Hebraic symbol for completion. And this just happens to be the last, the seventh sign of Jesus. And I think it shows his authority, his completeness over all the cosmos, even death, and that should give us confidence. You know, and unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we're going to experience this intruder into God's world that's death. You know, even Lazarus dealt with it twice, right? He was returned to life, but he died a second time. But we know the full story that death is not the end for us, that when we put our faith in Jesus, we know that we've been shown grace by God, that in death, our spirit will be in God's presence until the end of days when heaven joins earth. And we also will experience that bodily resurrection and live forever with him. Death isn't the end. As Leon Morris has said, death is but a gateway to further life and fellowship with God. Right, our lifetimes are just a blip on the spectrum of eternity. And there's so much more to come where we will live with delight in our Savior. And I opened with the words of the fantasy world of J.K. Rowling, sharing that she said, death comes for us all in the end. But I want to close with the wisdom of another fantasy author that I love, J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of Lord of the Rings. In his book, Return of the King, they actually highlighted it in Rings of Power, if you've watched this. But he pens these words about death, which I think gives a much more beautiful picture than that even of Rowling. He says, in the end, 
the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Such is that blessed hope that we have in Christ. Now this week, as we reflect on these things, I've got some um, reflection questions. I, I put a page on the website. So if you are not on Facebook, I'll put these on Facebook, but I'm going to start updating the website. So if you want to go to them through the week, they can be found on the sermons uh, page on the website. So the first is this. What are some of the implications of Jesus's ferocity towards death? Think about that. Dwell on that. Meditate on that. How does this give you a glimpse into the goodness of God? Second is this. Have you experienced a time where well-meaning friends encourage you to move too quickly through grief during a loss. And I think, I'm guessing that at times, we're uncomfortable with grief, and so we want someone to get over their feelings so that we can feel comfortable again. And so we or others have kind of said, maybe hastily, right, like, time to get over it. But how does that shape you? And there's a whole lot of stuff whenever you deal with trauma and you don't process it correctly, that's, that's a whole nother subject for another time. Last is this. Do you feel the assurance that you will be with Jesus when you die? Because I I know there are times even in my own life that I wrestle with doubt. I'm sure all of you do. Why or why not? Is that something you truly believe, or is it just something we give lip service to? So those are some things to think on, reflect on this week, to try to stretch us a little bit more with God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and the, the record that it is to remind us of who you are. Lord, that we can see your love for us, your anger at death, and your commitment to turning the world around. Lord, showing up and establishing your kingdom and, and allowing it to flourish and grow and while we push back against things like suffering and death and oppression, May we hold fast that you know what you're doing and that it is just a blip on the radar, that the shadow is just a a passing reality, a passing thing. That ultimately we have hope that we will be with you, delighting in you forever. Lord, we pray this in the name that is our hope, Jesus. Amen.